Colin's Last Stand Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. Knockback, in addition to the interview podcast series Fireside Chats and the weekly YouTube show dedicated to video games called SideQuest, is fan-funded over at patreon.com slash Stand. and without you, none of these shows would exist. If you like Knockback or any of what Colin's Last Stand does, please consider going to Patreon and showing your support. You can even get cool perks in return, like early access to shows, the ability to vote on future show topics, exclusive Q&As, and much more. Thank you for believing in Colin's Last Stand. Now, on to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. As always, I'm joined by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. Hello there. How are you? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you doing? I'm good. I, it's so funny because I often, for many years, have started podcasts by asking the person how they are. Yeah. Or at least having some sort of banter. Makes but sense. But I'm not used to recording them like eight back to back to back over a few days. Yeah. So I feel like I'm being redundant to you. No. But not to the audience. Not at all. But then it's just being done for that banter and it's not really being done for substance. There you that's go. The, uh, that's the kind of ironic part it's of it. It's not real. No, it's words. not real. Because I know how you are. You were the same the last time I asked you a few hours ago. <laughs> I assume. Unless something's happened. No, I think everything's the same. Uh, for those out there that are unaware, Knockback is a nerd culture kind of, you know, retro-fueled podcast where we talk about old things, yes, things yes. that we like. They don't necessarily have to be that old. They could be oh. very old, though, too. Right. And we've talked about, you know, video games and, and TV shows and whatnot, but we've not yes. talked about something that I wanted to touch on with you, Dagan. Yeah. And this is something that I can't speak a great deal to at all. So I'm really going to be kind of guiding the conversation, I guess, with some questions and comments, but you're really going to be driving this, this bad boy today. Okay. It's about anime. Yes. And specifically about... I want to talk about when anime was still underground before it went mainstream. Nice. I'm really often amazed. Yeah. Especially from what my perspective seems to be the last five years. And I don't think it's much more than that. Where anime seems to be mainstream. Actually Very mainstream. Much so. Now, I know like Cowboy Bebop and Dragon Ball Z and everything. Yeah. These things, you know, especially in the West, were proliferating and percolating for 20 years or so. And, and yeah. obviously, I, there were some anime that I liked when I was a kid. Right. But that was still something you saw at conventions. That was never something that anyone normal people were talking about. Right. And it's, you know, with, with the rise of like Crunchyroll and, and the internet, obviously kind of just giving you total access without gates. Yeah. And all that kind of stuff. I feel like from my perspective, anime has left the video game threshold or the, the really, you know, nerdy Japanese centric consumer threshold and, yes. and kind of crossed out and everything. Have you, have you witnessed that as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's been a slow that's been a slow burn as far as like anime becoming more popular because it really started to become the uptick in popularity and it kind of seeping into the becoming like a culture rather than a subculture and becoming more mainstream was probably started we could get into it more but it probably started in the I would say late 90s and then but like you said just saturating into mainstream more and more and more for various reasons. Sure. So you would you would trace it back a little bit further, and I understand that. For me, I trace it back like my own thoughts about kind of its rise, or it's like it's where its current status is today. Is when at IGN I took a, these guys from Crunchyroll, which is this huge you know anime streaming service that people for people that don't know. This was in like 2012 or so. They wanted to come have a meeting with me about their anime streaming service. Okay. And I was, I and I used to get meetings all the time. That's interesting. Like, like, like things that people want to do all the time. You have to say yeah. no a lot. So I expected to say no to these guys, but they were around the corner, and I started reading. Some of their statistics and also like just some of the things that were going on in anime and how much yeah. money it was grossing and how it was growing in the West. And what I realized was that from my perspective, quietly, these were no longer like PSP games that 30,000 people bought or things that were on late night on deep cable television or things obviously you imported. And, yeah. And, and, but that it was something that 
was so important to so many people that there was a Netflix style streaming service that was dedicated just to the genre. And that's when I well knew, said. Yeah. that's when I knew from my layman perspective, being embedded in nerd culture, but still being totally detached from that, that sure, there yeah. was, there was something more here than what I remember growing up with you. Very interesting. Yeah. I could see that painting a picture for you. Sure. Yeah. So what I wanted to discuss with you was okay. your origins with anime and kind of okay. how you, how you got into it and fell into it, how that ties in with you as an artist. Okay. And, I guess how that brings us to today, because the thing that I'm really interested in with you and I've talked to you about in the past is how your style of drawing has changed radically. Yes. And when I was a kid, you drew in a very anime Japanese style. Yeah. That was awesome. You're, you were awesome at it. And thank you. And but it's indistinguishable from what I do. What now. you do today. Like yeah. the missing link is like, I don't even know where it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. It was something that I, I guess I just kind of absorbed when I was a kid watching these things, watching these tapes, hearing your stories about how you even procured some of this shit. And that's yeah. kind of what I want to get into today. Okay, cool. So how did it all begin? What was your what was your original exposure to to what we know as is anime? Okay. So and you're you know what's called you're an OG anime nerd just by association, which is kind of neat, you know, because you, you did it, grow it, it up is with cool. me, you know. So, cool. yeah, for me, if I trace it all the way back something i haven't talked about too much yet so it's kind of fun to be able to get a chance to talk about something and anime of course something near near and dear to my heart especially anime from the 80s for me i could trace it all the way back to mom and dad had best friends growing up on long island across the street mark and hiroko mark was an italian guy i believe he was from brooklyn originally and hiroko was a japanese woman and mark was i don't know if mark was a marine I don't know what uh, what um, branch of the services he was in, but he was stationed in Okinawa, I believe, and met Hiroko there, and they became husband and wife and moved to Long Island and had children. And so mom's best friend, Hiroko, grew up across the street. And I remember the kids were, they, they had four kids, and the kids were of varying ages, uh, Kenny being the youngest, and they had toys around the house that weren't typical toys that now I go on to re and they always attracted my attention. Like a, they had giant Godzilla toys and giant robots, which I now I, c I could identify what they were. But then it was like, what is this? This is not what, what this isn't a, a cookie monster toy. What is this thing? You know what I mean? They had stuff that was Japanese and the giant robots. Now I know is Mazinger Z and other stuff it was that was laying around the house and that piqued my interest of something different wow this is colorful what is this giant robot this is neat we don't have this what is this the fists fire off you know they have giant rocket fists and stuff like that. I, it was it piqued my interest really piqued my interest and i remember being around that from a young age and i was attracted to it but i was super young i was like four or five years old and then Really, the first touch tone that I could trace back to being really getting my attention into anime was a series that premiered. I probably saw it in 79, but it came out much earlier. I think it came out in 72, 73 in Japan. Then it was syndicated for American television in the late 70s in North America. was a show that we knew as Battle of the Planets or G-Force. In Japan... I found out much later in Japan that was called Science Ninja Team Gachaman. And this show, Battle of the Planets, I, I was automatic. Like, I, this is the first show that I remember waking up to watch in the morning. 
like it it was you know five teenagers i don't know if you if you would remember it or know it they had like bird costumes on their helmets they had helmets and capes and then their visors of their helmets were like bird beaks is that the guy from tatsunoko the, the yeah yeah, from, yeah yeah cap later yeah. on cap because i was a tatsunoko that's where i found that cartoon. character okay, yeah, yeah exactly okay. from the capcom versus tatsunoko and they all like embodied the power of a bird who was an owl. The princess was what, whatever it was, Sparrow. And they had a, you know, th- their spaceship was the Phoenix. And that was the first time I remember being attracted by, and it felt so different than everything else that was, you know, than the Super Friends. It felt so different. Inherently, I didn't know why it felt so different, but it was very different. You know, the style, the art was different. Um, it was colorful. The camera angles are more dynamic. It had more effects in it. It it was flashier. There was something, it just attracted me to it. I mean, I remember being so into it that I couldn't wait. I was in Little League at the time. My, maybe my first year of Little League, 1979. So I was five or six years old. And, trying, and couldn't wait for Little League to be over so I could go home and watch that show. And then certain things to follow in the years to come. Voltron. Robotech. All the stuff from the early to mid 80s that I identified, and it's funny because I identified them as being Japanese. I didn't know much about it, but I knew it was different. I knew it's funny, like I never really tried to articulate this, but I've thought about it a lot. As somebody who was always really drawn to art and artwork, it felt so different than the American cartoons to me. Like let's take let's say Super Friends, which was a really big thing in the late 70s, early 80s to mid 80s in, in the United States. You had the Super Friends cartoons, and they were animated, but it felt sh- it felt schlocky. I couldn't articulate it at the time, but you would see scenes, and it felt, you know, it felt it felt static. It felt like oh, Superman's flying, but it's not really drawn dynamically. It's kind of like it's plain, it's vanilla. You know, the animation looks a little weird. It's moving a lot, but it's not always moving well. You know anime was like this thing these anime shows that i was seeing was like the art always looked good that there was a, there was an economy not only in like a real graphic appeal and economy not only in the art style but also in the animation if if they didn't have the budget to move it they would just move the hair and the art looked great but they would just move the hair and then there'd be speed lines in the back that really resonated with me as a kid it just always looked right you know what I mean? Even if it wasn't moving a lot, it looked cool. It always looked cool. Whether they did something with the camera angle, if it was just a little more dynamic in the sense of the way this thing was a little more cinematic in the way it was presented, it just felt cooler than American stuff. And it just got its hooks into me really early. And I always enjoyed watching it. And then what had happened, in what had happened, which really locked me into, but I didn't know it as anime. I didn't really, I just caught the thing, like any kid in the 80s, 70s and 80s, I just caught the things that came on television. You know, that's, that's what I was, that's what we had. We were lucky enough to have it and it interested me, but whatever came on, I would just, that's what I, that's what I ingested. Then what had happened in 10th grade, it was in ninth or 10th grade, I think I was in 10th grade, I was a sophomore in high school. I was great friends with a kid named Pat. And I known Pat from like seventh grade I met Pat. I didn't go to school with him my whole life. I met him in seventh grade. We became fast friends. He was really into the same things. He was into drawing. He was into comics. He was into animation. And it was like really had a rapport, me and him. And in 10th grade, we were sitting in the cafeteria one day. 
And he said to me, I don't even know how the thing got. He's like, I saw this really cool thing. What had happened was Pat was going to these comic book conventions. We grew up on Eastern Long Island out in Rockville Center, which was out near Queens, all the way out in Western Long Island. He was taking treks out to Rockville Center to this comic book convention at the Holiday Inn every month. And at these conventions, there was a guy selling Japanese animation tapes, and they had a screening room, and they would show these things. And he was like, I saw this amazing thing, this amazing cartoon, and it was like about kids. And they were all like fighting in tanks. And it almost sounded like Red Dawn to me or something. And it sounded amazing. However he was painting this picture for me sounded amazing. It went on to be a cartoon, an, an, OV, an OAV animation called Gray Digital Target, which I had seen later on. He was at what he was describing to me. And I went, so I went to this convention with him. What happened was Pat's grandma would drive him out to this convention. She was such a sweet lady. She would drive him out to this convention every month, all the way out, like 50 miles, however far it was from us. And he was like, come with me next time. It's next month. Like it's, a, it's like the first Sunday of every month, whatever it was. Come with me and check this thing out. So I go to this comic book convention and it was mostly, it was 95% American comic books, but there was this guy selling he had boxes you know the comic the white comic book boxes sure he had boxes and boxes of vhs tapes which were oav or ova animation original animation video i didn't know what this was okay this was completely foreign to me i didn't know what this was yet and what it was was in japan animation culture was so important there was these they were making they weren't just making animation for television and for feature films they were making animation animation was such a huge thing there that they were making animated series and animated movies that went direct to video my mind was blown i was like what they boxes and boxes of these things so this guy would be so what had, what had happened was this guy was like a pirate what he did was i remember it was like this big great big guy big black bifocals and always wearing a black t-shirt that didn't fit so his belly was hanging out literally the classic uh, like nerd yeah. Just classic nerd like the comic book nerd from the simpsons but like more gothic he had boxes and boxes of videos he, what he did was laser disc which i never owned and i didn't really know what even what laser disc was at this point because we had vhs right we had videos we went to the video store we went to the videos the what he did was he took these oavs oftentimes from laser disc and he would dub it to VHS tape. He had these TDK, you know, high-quality VHS tapes, boxes, and he would Sharpie. Very nice handwriting on the bindings of these tapes. What it was, $30 a piece. It didn't matter if it was a 20-minute episode of something or a feature film, 30 bucks for this tape. So, and there was a screening room there, and he would show stuff throughout the course of the day, Right. So me and Pat start going to these things, and I'm, I'm working at the supermarket now. So what am I making, $100 a week or something? I'm spending all my cash. I go and buy three tapes at a time. I don't know. I have absolutely no frame of reference what these things are. They're not – so this is not so – let me paint the, paint the picture a little better. This is probably 1980 – this is probably 1989, okay? There's no such thing as anime in the United States yet. It doesn't exist. Just the stuff that I described to you on that we had from that we grew up with, those things that made it over. So I would spend, you know, 90 bucks. I'd get three tapes. I have no idea if it's good or bad. He has a list, a photocopied list, you know, 
of all the stuff he has. You could go through it, and it didn't mean it. What did it mean? I didn't know what right, anything you had no was. Idea what, yeah. I had no clue. And he had the screening room. Now, to paint a picture, we're in 10th grade, so we're 15 years old, right? We're easily the youngest people in the anime. We go into the screening room. It's a dark screening room. I'll never forget this. The first time I go. There's a guy. We're easily the people. There's a few people interested in anime. Let's say there's nine people in this dark screening room. On a TV, they're watching stuff. None, almost none of the stuff is subtitled or certainly not dubbed. It's all in Japanese, no subtitles, okay? Almost everything, feature films, series, whatever it is. We're easily the youngest, me and Pat are easily the youngest people there by 20 years. I mean, these guys are definitely in their mid, if they're in their mid-30s, they're young, okay? I, we go into the screening room, I'll never forget this. This guy has a, this one guy, total nerd, total definition of a nerd. He has this fishing vest on, a beige, a beige fishing vest covered front and back with pins of ja- of anime girls. Okay, like, it, I don't know where he would get this many pins from. Right. Covered with anime girls. They're in the screening room watching these things. So I go, the first time, I'll never forget, the first time I went to the screening room, I saw two things that I later knew what they were and I followed. One was called Bubblegum Crisis. And one was called Angel Cop. Bo- Bubblegum Crisis, I remember, it was Bubblegum Crisis Episode 8. And it, it turned out to be the last episode of the series. It's the first one that I saw because they were screening it at that convention. And then Angel Cop was like this really stylized, noir, detective thing. And you know, it had that thing too. A lot of old school anime nerds will tell you the same thing. Watching it in Japanese lended this mystique because you really didn't know what was going on. So it was always a lot heavier than it really was because, you you know, it sounded amazing. It was in Japanese. You really had no translation. So you were ima- it captures your imagination. You're imagining this crazy story and everything like that. And it was so different. I just remember being struck by those two things because the first two things I saw at these conventions. And it felt really adult. It felt really adult. That was my first sense of it. It was like the characters the 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 craftsmanship of the art the situations it was like terrorism it it just felt it just felt so different than everything else and i was never also i should also preface this by saying i was never a big comic book guy i went through certain things and tried to get into it over the course of my life like you know i went through a brief iron man stage it never stuck i went through a brief spider-man stage growing up and i got a couple issues and i got bored with it G.I. the Larry Hama G.I. Joe books when I got it was into G.I. Joe and I found out oh wow these are comic books I got a little bit into that the Transformers books that um, Marvel did but never really comic books American comic books never really stuck with me but this was something different it was sci-fi it was like it was colorful it was like it was you know they were like mercenaries bubblegum crisis was a a story about four women who were like mercenaries that like kind of operate above the law and go after this evil corporation. That's one of my that's one of my earliest memories. Yeah, that's like anime. a that's I remember a, I remember Bubble Girl. That's Girls. a touchstone for you. Yeah, absolutely. And Definitely. that's really how anime started when I found out about these OAVs. When I found out like I cannot believe it. Animation is this big in Japan that they make these videos and they go direct they make these animation animated, you know, oftentimes series, sometimes feature films. And they go direct to video. These aren't even on TV or in the movies. These are amazing. You know, sometimes the quality was really striking and the stories and 
I remember seeing the animation that was based on the Ninja Gaiden games. Uh, oh, wow. Ninja Ryu Kenden, it was called. And that all these things. And then that just, you know, we would go to these conventions every month. That's how it started for us. And then there was a, a I don't know, a North American animation mag, a Japanese anime. And also, anime wasn't called anime. It was called Jap Animation. Right. I, I, that I Jap, so if you, if you go back that far to remember Jap Animation, you're OG. As far as I'm concerned, it's a terrible name, but that's what they it was called. It was just a fusion of Japan and animation. Right, I understand that's, how they what, got that's what it was called. And I didn't realize, you know, a couple of things. Well, first of all, there was this an, there was a animation magazine, a Japanese animation magazine that was pretty new. It maybe came out a year before I discovered all this, called Animag, and I believe it was Canadian, but it was North American, and it was like the first thing that I saw that. It was cool for us because we could pick it up and they reviewed things and they talked about an episode front to back because a lot of times, like I said, a lot of times these weren't, they certainly weren't dubbed and oftentimes, most of the time they weren't subtitled yet. So you had to, this was like a compendium for us. We could say, okay, what's going on in the episode? This is something about the characters. And it was so, I just remember being so exciting. It was so exciting and it felt like, it felt it had such a mystique too, because you couldn't find these things. You couldn't get these things. We had to go to these conventions. You know, we had to go to this convention every month that was far away. It was expensive. Um, you never knew what you were getting. It just felt so cool, and that was the beginning to me. And then, of course, you know the vi- you know getting it, it introduced us to ma- the manga and what that was, and finding things like Dragon Ball and Akira Toriyama and all of that. It just it sort of snowballed. It started that way and it snowballed for us, you know? And it was eye-opening because then we kind of traced it back to video games and, oh, this is what this video game is. Oh, GoGo13, that's based on a, a comic book. It's so weird in hindsight you know? that they brought some of that shit over without... Because there's a few examples like that on the NES where I'm like, GoGo13 until 10 yeah. years ago was a video game. Right. I, I That I that was of dubious quality. You didn't realize it was based on a manga. No, no, an idea. I had no idea. A couple of anime but, but, but the question is, like, why did they port it? I know. It was just like what a What was thing. the point? The, thank God they did, right? Because we had these special things that felt different. Right, right. Gold War 13 felt different. We knew it was something different, you know? And it was cool to kind of get the tendrils out there. And now you're tracing it all back and you're, and you're figuring it out. You're figuring it out, you know? And that's really how it started. And then, you know, it, it fed into all sorts of things, like seeing Akira for the first time. That, now, is is it fair to say that Akira is like the first bleed over into some sort of mainstream consciousness? Because Yeah, I think Akira was one of those things that came out in 88, and we saw it very early on after it came out. Akira came out right before we discovered anime. So the first time we saw it was in Japanese. It was only out for probably a year when we saw it. And I think the power of akira was it was so good the quality was so striking that that's the thing that people that's the thing that raised eyebrows if you knew someone that knew someone that knew about anime and you heard about this thing you that was the first thing that was like a must see that you knew about it because your friend's cousin's brother was an anime fan you heard about this thing you heard about it enough times you're like all right i gotta see this thing you know that was sort of a that was a big crossover, I think. Yeah, that was a that that's a good point. I think that was one of the first things that really fed, you know. I would say that, and no, I think that was that. I can't think of something earlier than that. That was, you know, you had Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, and Toonami that were 
starting to show anime on television, even it was on cable television in that time, that started it, that started the people's people noticing it. It raised the eyebrow. Like, what is this? This is an animation from the West. And then, not to jump too far ahead, but then video stores, not video stores, rental video stores, but video stores that you would find in the mall that sold things like FYE, that they started to sell anime, to VHS. Yeah, some smart buyers at some of these places were probably starting to right. get wise. And they noticed. They noticed it. So that's really where it started for me and then snowballed. You know, I was in high school where I really started to discover that. But that that was a mind-blowing thing to realize that animation was, especially as an animation fan and somebody who wanted to be an animator, it was like a breathtaking thing that animation could be so important in a country that it wasn't just fair for children, number one. It wasn't just fair for kids. It wasn't just stuff that was on the television and, and on, you know, these Disney feature films. Maybe you get the, you know, the rare Don Bluth film. This was stuff that was like so part of the culture that they were going direct to video with this stuff. And and people were paying for it and spending these companies like Toshiba, EMI and stuff. They were spending a lot of money. These anime, it was the really the golden. And that's the other thing, too. Like I came up in the we discovered anime during the golden age of the OAV, during the golden age of the giant robot, during the giant, the great era of the giant robot stuff which i'll name which I'll, I'll name off the great era of like you know a lot of time like gynax anime studios like gynax and studio new uh these these companies were like the talent it was a new generation of japanese anime talent at art school these guys that had learned under the masters you know like hayao miyazaki and tezuka and guys like that so this was a really and especially in retrospect the, the they were putting a lot of money and they were they were kind of in bed with companies like Toshiba who were like they would put a lot of money and time into the theme songs of things this was like the really the golden age the late mid to late 80s was like really especially the late 80s was like the golden i guess crossing over into the early 90s as well that was the golden age of anime you know so very exciting we would i mean we were so jazzed by it you know it got to the point, too, I remember in high school, by the time I was a senior, there were guys in, like, my AP English class that I would have, like, an anime t-shirt on. And they would be like, what is, you know, like, what is that? Let me go to the next convention with you. I want to get into that. Like, let me get into that, you know, um, a couple of guys. And then there was big conventions at the Hotel Pennsylvania in New York City, big anime conventions at that time. It was like going from this little comic book convention every month at the Holiday Inn in Rockville Center on Long Island, now you're doing this as an actual whole floor of anime sellers. Now you had posters, and this guy, this one guy, Bruno, who was in Rockville Center, now it's like 12 of those guys selling stuff. Now you're into toys and all this import stuff from Japan. It was like, oh, we were just like so thrilled by it. I want to jump back real quick, okay. E- even though we were far past it now, because it just it just jogged my memory. I was writing some notes, and I was looking on the phone to see if I forgot any questions that I should ask too from the audience. Okay, um, that I solicited on Patreon. Please is going back to Hiroko and her kids. Yeah, which I didn't know. I did. I actually did not know that that was a component of this. That sure. it seems like maybe Pat was more important to you ultimately getting exposed to what you would come to understand as anime. But yeah, to be exposed to that, there's this there's something unknown going on. 
yeah. in this other place. This has been happening without us knowing. It was like that must have been really cool to see. Yeah. I mean, that that's a real rarity in the states in the seventies to be playing with toys from Japan. That's not a thing. That no, we're doing. that wasn't a thing. So that's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, things like Mazinger Z and Get a Robo and stuff like that. It was like those toys were laying around. So in retrospect, that's really what first sparked it. It was like, what is going on here? Like, we don't have this stuff. Why is this? This is cool stuff. Why, why don't we have this? You know, probably until the time Voltron came out where I could draw the line because I was probably 10 by the time we had Voltron, nine or 10. So then I could draw the line back like, oh, this was like those things. That's what this was, you know. But it took a company like Matchbox or the television people that discovered Voltron to bring it to us. You know what I mean? And that's where it started for a lot of people. When did you start getting anime that you could understand? Like anime that was mm. translated. I know that I know, and I'm still, I'm pretty sure still to this day, it's probably the case that yeah. anime, you know, a real anime fan would never watch a dubbed product, I guess. Right. You, you'd always no. watch a subtitled product. I would much rather watch it in the original Japanese. I mean, that's the way I remember people being even yeah. in college and stuff. And I it's really it's true though. You really want to see the original Japanese. So know? when do you, when do you remember starting to get this stuff translated? Like, like, as opposed, because I remember watching both with you. I remember you having access to stuff where I could read it. Yeah, um, yeah. You know what the very first thing was, Kyle? Well, the very, you know what the very first thing was, seeing the dub. I never saw at that time a subtitle that here. We saw the first dub. Who, if I'm not mistaken, the voice of Leonardo from the Ninja Turtles cartoon was the voice of Can- Canada in that. That was the first time, I think, seeing a dub Akira probably in 1990, 89 or 90, was that was the first time I ever saw anything in English. Before that, like I said, we had those Animag magazines as a compendium, and we kind of preferred it that way. You know, it's like, all right, there's an animated movie called Venus Wars. Oh, episode, you know, issue five, I don't know, I could be mistaken, but issue five of Animag covers Venus Wars is on the cover. They're going to... They'll spell it out for you so you can watch it and then figure out, You just read about what, you know, the plot synopsis, the characters, has beautiful art in it. Sometimes Animag got, this was another thing too, like sometimes Animag got like development art and character sketches, not just, they're not just taking screen caps of these things. They were in Japan getting this art from people. This was like a serious thing. They were presenting this to a very niche North American audience at that point. Did they also did they, not them themselves directly, but this yeah. did this magazine solicit yeah. uh, sellers? Like, would you were, were there direct to like mail yes. order stuff that you could take advantage of? That too? was another thing. There was they would in the back. That's a great question. That there would be another thing of like, oh, there's this place in L.A. like uh, Animation Eye or whatever those stores were at the time. Oh, there's one place in Vancouver that this was an American and Japanese animation retailer. They have T-shirts. They have the they have the OAVs on VHS. They have the T-shirts. They have the toys. They have the posters. So that was the first thing. And I never got into that. I never got into mail order actually because I always we had between the conventions and then later on we found which I'll get into. We found other ways to get stuff when we found out about Chinatown. But that was that's how it started for us. That's how it started for us. And I think it was, it's a good question, but I think it was years. I really think it was until the mid nineties where things started to be where you could go out and buy a dubbed or subbed VHS. You know, what we did was what we figured out late in high school and early in college was, all right, there was a, you go to border books, uh, you know, tower books, let's say. 
they had everything. So they had actual Japanese anime magazines, like New Type. And you would either go to Chinatown or go to Tower Books. You would get the New Type magazine. You couldn't, it was all in Japanese, but you could see the pictures. All right, this looks in KO Century Beast Warriors. Okay, this looks interesting. You Sometimes the titles would be in English, so you could figure it out. Then you'd go to an, an an anime store in the you know the heart of Chinatown in New York. You had you knew what you were looking for. You would say, "I'm looking for this." They would take the VHS out tape out again, thirty dollars for a twenty minute episode. We didn't care, you know. And maybe they would have the you know maybe they would have the sharpie writing on it and, and a sticker of the thing. And then that, that was like super exciting. That was almost like a real thing. Now right. it's almost like a real VHS tape. And we found. Um, my friends and I at that time found a store in New York, in Chinatown, I believe it was on Canal Street, and it was like a little mall, an underground mall, and there was a painting of Goku from Dragon Ball on the side of this building, so we called it Dragon Ball Mall, and there was an anime store in there, and that's where we started to go. We would get a new type magazine, figure out what we wanted to see, bring it in, bring it with us, or just study it. Okay, I want this, this, and this. And what was cool, what we felt was cool. And then we'd go to this place and pick it up. What we felt was cool about that was like we were seeing what the Japanese people were seeing because we were smart enough to check the Japanese magazines right. out. This is what's new in Japan right now. We're not even waiting for it to get into Animag. You know, we're waiting now. Was, we're looking at New Type magazine. So we're figuring out, okay, this is hot in Japan right now. Let's go grab this from Chinatown. And then later we did that. China, there was a couple of places in Chinatown and Philly too when we were in art school that we did that too. And you could get Dragon Ball posters and all that kind of We found out about Dragon Ball Z. And, you know, again, it was like drawing the parallels. Oh my, this is Akira Toriyama. Holy shit. This is the guy who did the art for Chrono Trigger. Right. And Dragon War. And Dragon and the Dragon Quest games. And then we found out about Dragon Quest. And then. I'm skipping that too. We had the Dragon Warrior cartoon also that came out in 1990 in the United States. They played it like 5:30 in the morning. It was Dragon Quest. We knew it was Dragon as Dragon Warrior and that was dope. You know what? That I got to correct myself. That the Dragon Quest cartoon Legend of the Hero Abel it was called was based on the first few Dragon Quest games. We knew them as Dragon Warrior. That that was the first thing I ever saw dubbed on television because that was probably 1990 i was still in high school and that they literally i don't know what channel it was i don't remember somebody out there might remember but they were literally playing that show at 5 30 in the morning and i would wake up on a saturday morning i had to be at work i worked in the supermarket at like seven in the morning i would wake up and watch that at 5 30 in the morning every every day that was dubbed that was dubbed and that was a that was amazing i love that cartoon that's kind of the trajectory of it that's kind of the trajectory all the way into art school you know, that, that was how we figured it out. And it was, it felt so cool back then. Like even, well, in my day, you know, I'm not being an old man about it, but there was a mystique. Sure. You had to work at it. You had to actually, it wasn't on television. It, what we couldn't, I couldn't put Adult Swim on demand and watch an episode of Gundam Wing or whatever it was. Like we had to go and find that stuff, you know, and such a joy, like to, to know we came up in that era of like the giant, the, the, epitome of the giant robot cartoons like all the gundam stuff from that era giant robo zeo rhymer dangaio the mac you know the macross valkyrie evangelion like th that was the era of the giant robots never gotten that good again you know that was just like such a 
cool era that captivated our just captured our imagination because it was so different than the stuff that was in North America. It's so interesting now to see how anime is informing so many things, you know, from the Matrix movies to to everything. Yeah, just so exciting. It was so exciting to discover discover it and sort of learn more about it and sort of figure out how to obtain the things and you know, draw parallels to to the video game world and it was just it had such a it had such a wonderful feel to it when it was still like a subculture. You know, it was still underground. It's but it, you know, on the other hand, it's wonderful that people have discovered it. It deserves attention. It's it's a it's a beautiful art form, you know. And and wonderful, but yeah. So that's my that's my story with how it started for me. Dustin Payne over on Patreon, and up, where Dustin? is the other? There was a one more question. Okay. Oh, Mario Le Heraldez. All right. uh, both asked similar questions, which was about how like they're just excited about this topic. I they oh, don't have I'm a glad. question that's worth uh, noting, but I definitely wanted to acknowledge them since they did they did write in and we kind of covered what they wanted us to talk about there. My question from here is what what happened to Pat? So you know what I don't know. We just we lost touch. He was a he was a really a like he was really a kindred spirit. He was one of those guys in high school who was you know we just we really were motivated by the same things. You know we loved art, we loved animation. He was a big comic book guy. He he in fact he introduced me. He was a big comic book guy, unlike myself. But he's the one who introduced me to like Frank Miller Batman and you know books like The Killing Joke. The pun- he was really into the Punisher. Not only that, but he introduced me to indie comic books like Sam and Max, Freelance Detectives, Fish Police. He really had a lot of knowledge about all these things that really captured my attention that sort of grew out of like, I really loved Looney Tunes and Voltron. And, you know, I kind of ingested what I could. And he he already knew about anime. He, without him, I don't know how I would have discovered anime. I mean, he was really my he was really my link into that. That's amazing. It's amazing like what one person yeah. one encounter. I mean, in retrospect, it was really special. I was lucky to have that. Um, yeah, it was just a matter of growing, growing apart later in high school, I think, you know, um, but yeah, really, really one of my first, you know, kindred spirits that I grew up with, you know, really cool that I had that. How did, uh, how did this affect your art at the time? Yeah, it really informed my art. I mean, you could, you could trace anime, the simplicity and the graphic nature, not the graphic nature as far as like. (laughs) you know, like tentacles and that sort of like X-rated stuff. I'm saying the visual graphic nature of, you know, it's simplified. There's an elegant line to it. You could really trace it back to Asian and specifically Japanese art. And I know anime was really inspired by the early Disney stuff and the big eyes and everybody knows that story about how that came out of that. But to me, I, you know, it just read, it just resonated with me. It's funny because I know animators that are good friends of mine that, they that's not their thing they want to watch the lion king you know what i mean they want to watch they were really informed by superman comic books whatever looney tunes whatever it was right that but for me the graphic nature something about the elegance of that saying a lot with a little you know the spare line not having the draw you know just saying it with a couple of details it just spoke to me you know that level of art and i really was into it I mean, I was really into draw, trying to draw that way as well. What, for whatever reason, when I got into art school, I people weren't really discouraging me. When I got into art school, I think it's typical even today 
people being inspired by that and drawing that way, you know. Um, when I got into art school, I discovered what had happened to me was I discovered old UPA cartoons from like the 1950s, like things like Gerald McBoing Boing and all the content. What what UPA was was that was a stylistic movement in commercial animation and television and com actual commercial stuff that was like we don't want to do the Disney thing. It was more like a modern art approach to animation design. And I sort of discovered that through watching old things and also things like Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's Lab, who those Craig McCracken and Gendy Tartakovsky, they came out of that being inspired by that tradition. And I sort of, they were the, they were the link for me for that. And for whatever reason, that took me out of anime and wanting to draw that way anyway. I was always a fan of it. I always kept up with it, but wanting to draw that way. And when I started to find out about this UPA graphic, more cartoony sensibility, fine art approach sensibility, I think I was encouraged by it because it just reson resonated with me and I was, I was good at it. It just clicked with me. I think that came out of anime, though. It was the same, almost kind of a similar thing of like not trying to draw too many lines, keeping the detail minimal, stuff like that. It was just a different way of doing that. So I think anime was like was sort of a, a step up to that. And then when I discovered that, I sort of left anime alone because I wasn't I wasn't that good at it. And I was good at this other thing. And that encouraged me to go in that direction. And I think for me too as an artist, I need to evolve. I cannot do the same thing over and over again. I always need to find a new thread to kind of weave into what I'm doing. It keeps it interesting for me. So my art's always, hopefully always evolving. And I think that was the start of that, going from anime into UPA and UPA to being, you know, discovering guys like Von Bodie, graffiti, everything that, D Disney films, Don Bluth, everything that informed me as an artist and just trying to always thread in a new thing. And you could see how much my work's changed from now to when I discovered the UPA stuff. You know, I'm all, that's really what keeps it, it keeps it alive for me. I can't just find a style and just do that for us. It feels like cheating to me. And that, 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 that's not right for every. I'm not judging anybody else's art. But for me, it feels like cheating if you're not evolving. Sure, you know? sure, sure. So that's how, that, that's how it went for me with that. You, you brought up tentacles and all that kind of stuff. Before. I'm <laughs> yeah. curious, when was your first exposure to like hentai and all that kind of stuff? Was, yeah. that, was that kind of stuff mixed in initially? Yeah. yeah, no, it was. In fact... You remember a little earlier, I referred to the, they had a list, a typed up list right, of right. the stuff that this guy Bruno had at these initial conventions that we were going to. It had all the content that he had. Well, the, he had stuff in there. There was a, there was an OAV and I could honestly say, you guys will laugh at me, but I could honestly say I've never actually seen any of these. There was an OAV called Cream Lemon. And this was one of the first as far as I know, this was one of the first quote-unquote hentai. I'm not even sure they called it that at this time. And he had those on the list. And it was like cream lemon, you know. I mean, they were all, it was a whole page of those. But he, I, I, I wish I still had some of these lists. Maybe dad has one or two laying around. Or maybe I have one folded inside of an old issue of Animag. But it had on there like X-rated. It had a thing on there, like in parentheses, X-rated. So that was the first time... 
um, I remember seeing that. And I think those were from the early to mid 80s. So by the time I had we had discovered OAV animation, OVA animation, those had been around a while already. But Cream Lemon was the first one I remember. And there were others. There was a, a, a film called, I don't remember it. The, the Japanese title began with a U, but it translated to Legend of the Overfiend that we knew it as, which was like a feature-length film about these demons taking over the Earth. And that was the first time I ever remember seeing and watching the so, quote-unquote tentacle X-rated stuff. And then, obviously, it snowballed, and that became a whole thing. But those are the first two things. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. Some content... Some content that wasn't necessarily hentai had hentai elements in it. Like I remember a series that you may remember hearing about that was a Gynax, really cool Gynax sci-fi series. I think it was Gynax called Ixer. There was Ixer, there was Ixer 1 and then later there was Ixer 3. But the Ixer cartoons had that mixed, the Ixer, the Ixer animation content had some of that, those elements mixed in. Um, they might have had a scene or two with the, that sort of subversive stuff going on. But that was a big part. That was a big part of anime in the 80s and 90s. That was really a big thing, you know, whether you liked it or not. So that was the first time I ever remember seeing. That's a good question. That was the first time I remember seeing those. Yeah. And with buying these tapes, do you know how many of them you had ultimately? Were you, were you able to like trade them with others or sell them back or do like. No, that was the worst part. Like they would not, you couldn't take them back. Unfortunately, I never had a I never had a laserdisc player, so I never was able to watch any. Even it would have been even cool to have. It would even be cool now to have a laserdisc player and maybe some things, some more mainstream things like Akira, uh, Wind Ninja, you know, the Ninja Scrolls, uh, Wind Ninja Chronicles, or Ninja Scrolls, we know it. But no, we had you. That's the thing. You were stuck with it, and I remember. But I do remember some things worked out well, like Bubblegum Crisis, where you're like, "Oh, this is amazing! I want all of these." Some things didn't work also, so out so well, and you would get one episode of it, and that would be the end of it. You know, you wouldn't want any more. Oh, I kind of made a mistake with this one. It's not so great, you know, or it's really short, or you know, that was the funny thing. It was like a twenty-minute episode or a two-hour, they were two-hour feature film. They were the same price. That's a, and thirty dollars in nineteen eighty-nine. Oh, lot, you were that's a lot of money, dude. That's a lot of loot, man. That's I mean, a lot of money today. Thirty dollars yeah. back then is sixty for a dub. Uh, you know, it's a dub. Sometimes VHS to VHS, sometimes you were lucky enough to get it off Laserdisc, so the quality was okay. Yeah, that was a, it was a crapshoot. It, it almost reminds me of buying Nintendo games. You know, you might have had a little reference in Nintendo Power, but you were just kind of, you might as well put your hand over your eyes and put your finger on something. You know, that's, it, maybe it sounds interesting, you know. Maybe it was written up in Animag, but probably not because there's so many hundreds of these things. You know, some have 16 episodes, some is a feature film. So you were taking a shot. But that was, you know, in retrospect, that was part of the excitement of it. It would have been kind of cool if they saw that we were 15. Maybe, hey, kid, I'll give you this one for 20. But they never did that. You know what I mean? They loved that we were there, man. They were making, they, once they discovered me and Pat, they were making a couple extra hundred every, t every time we went. Yeah, that's know? the crazy part is the... Just the profit. These guys must have been making really good money. Yeah, they must Unless have. they're going to Japan and getting their shit themselves. But well, he told certain. me, that guy actually told me after we had some familiarity and we got to know him a little bit. He said he went to, he told us he went to Japan every six months to find the stuff. May, at, in that era, in retrospect, maybe he could have been getting the stuff from Chinatown because it, was, it already had seeped. Obviously, we've discovered it. It already seeped into that, at least if you were Japanese and living in, 
you could have got it domestically at that point. But maybe he was. Who knows? You know, it was it was illegal as hell. Whatever he whatever. He yeah, did. I mean that's the wild thing. It was probably all under the table. Obviously, super all under the pirate table and like just complete piracy. Yes, before complete. any publishers. No, there were no stakeholders in the states. That were exactly. Do about yeah, it. no one was going to go after him yet. You know, that's pretty so. wild stuff, man. I, I'm often fascinated by the Comic Con and Comic Convention merchants and the things they have and why they have them and how they make a living and who these people are. There's a lot of fascinating and interesting characters yeah. that that hawk their wares at these places that I'm <laughs> super interested in. It's amazing. It doesn't seem it seems like a meager living, but maybe I'm wrong. It seems like it's you gotta have a lot of passion to really to really do that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think that's the other thing. I think these guys were passionate about it. From you know, from this from this guy who was actually selling this stuff to the guy the guy with the pinup vest, the pins all over his pinup vest. I mean, these guys, you know, they tracked, they were, you know, you had to go out of your way at that point to chase this stuff down. And if you liked it, you had to, you had to make moves. You couldn't just sit around and wait for it to come to you. You had to figure out how to obtain this stuff, you know, and usually it was at great financial cost, <laughs> but if you loved it, you know, and it, you know, it's funny too. I do have most of my VHS collection still. I meant to take a picture of it for Instagram, and I, I, I have to dig it out. I have to dig it out. It's funny to go back and see that stuff because that's where it started, you know. I, I have more anime video tapes on VHS than I do on DVD probably because I, had, I was obtaining things to such a rapid degree at that point. And it's funny too, like two or three episodes of something, you get bored two or three episodes of another thing. Never a complete collection with the rare exception of like things like Bubblegum Crisis, which if you guys want an intro to 80s anime start at bubblegum crisis you won't be disappointed they they re-released um that north carolina company animigo they re-released uh a remastered blu-ray set it's i think it's a little pricey i think it was a kickstarter but i think it's a little pricey now but if you can and you're interested in that era of the anime bubblegum crisis is absolutely where i would start it's 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 fantastic it's so cool where do you feel like anime is today? Are you are you familiar with anything that's yeah? Because I'm really not. So. I follow it a little bit. I follow the things that, you know what? Yeah, I had a, I left it alone for a little while. I think it's sort of, you know, a lot of anime, you know, OG quote unquote anime fans would probably have a similar sentiment. But I, as it got a little more popular, I think I, I think I got a little annoyed with it. Even if I wasn't really aware that I was getting annoyed, probably that's what it was. I stepped away because I was getting a bit annoyed with it, just kind of seeping in too much and becoming a little too popular. You know, I don't know. You know, that's silly, but prob that's probably the case, to be honest. There are things today, a few things that I could recommend. I'm not up to – I am – there's so many things. I mean, from what I hear, anime production – is at such a breakneck pace at this point that they there isn't literally not enough artists to fill spots at these studios. That's how big it is. I mean, it's tremendous. So, um, and I would love to learn more about that because I still to this day know very little about anime production, actual proper anime production. And I would love to learn more about it. But there's a couple of series that I could highly recommend. The first one, as many anime fans know, is Attack on Titan. I still that, need to watch that. Please, Colin, you will love this series. I mean, there is, it is, you know, this is zombie apocalypse on so many steroids. That's what this whole series is. You like The Road? This is Tent Red Dawn. It's all these things mixed together. You know, it's, 
it's such a brilliant it's wonderful it's it's so good that my wife who doesn't even care for anime at all watched it with me the first couple of seasons wonderful one punch man great so so comical and different um if you haven't watched one punch man i think it's available it's definitely available on hulu and crunchyroll i think it's even on netflix it's wonderful not anime quote unquote it's a dreamworks production but let voltron legendary defender a little divisive if you're original voltron like a hardcore voltron fan but really they did a wonderful this is the first american influence co-pro that I could say they, they're doing a wonderful job with. This is a great rehash of a classic series. It's wonderful. I really like Voltron Legendary Defender. Although maybe not considered anime, quote unquote. And other than that, there's a couple others I don't want to forget. I really loved the Vision of Escaflone series. That, but that was from the late 90s. That was one thing that really captured my imagination and I really fell in love with back then. I'm trying to think um, of other, the other names that I remember, even if you didn't... Uh... Even if you didn't, like, I remember Ranma. Yeah, yeah. Ranma's a classic. If you, you want to go back to 80s animation, that's emblematic. That's a, that's a must-see series. A lot of episodes, but yeah, Romiko Takahashi, if I'm not mistaken, wonderful. Like, based on the manga. Funny. Really, really. Another thing, it's like a, things like Ranma, Bubblegum Crisis, I would highly recommend Ix, the Ixer series. Of course, Macross, which is going back a little further. I mentioned before Gunbuster, Evangelion, of course, which came a little slight bit later. They're so, with the exception of Evangelion on that list, they're so indicative of 80s animation that if you want a taste of what 80s animation felt like, go watch those series. Go Definitely go check those out. Um, Venus Wars, Five Star Stories was a great series so many yeah i'm trying to think of others that are, did you watch magic knight ray earth i remember that was a magic was knight a... ray earth was an, a, an anime series that of course they did the games the sega saturn game right. and the other, which is the where other i port. became familiar with those maybe yeah those are those are a big 80s thing it's a great name yeah that is a cool that is a cool and i forgot a lot about of the magic names knight. are cool and in, in like you know bubblegum crisis is a great name and they were so in, and you know what's funny about that era they were they were able to with the with the advent of OAV or OVA. So we knew them as OVA animation. They were able to. They weren't beholden to television, you know, slash advertising or feature film stakeholders. They were able to take chances and really be inventive with the content and be really genre specific as well. And that's why you got so many wonderful things in that period of time because they were able to try things. You know, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. You know, from sci fi to film noir to, you know, sword and sorcery, things like Record of Lotus War, which is an amazing sword and sorcery series that broke, that was based on D&D, but broke a lot of the molds. Like, you know, a party with a, of a female elf and a dwarf and a mage, but the mage is super young. It's not an old man. It's a young kid. You know, stuff like that, that just kind of stood the genre on its head a little bit and gave it gave a classic genre an anime spin. That's another one if you haven't seen. Record of Lotus War is a must-watch. That's what I love about the OAV, and I'm glad I remembered to say that. Like, they were really able to take chances and do some really special content, not being beholden to TV or a feature format. You know, and it, it it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic that they're able to do that. You know, 
Jimmy Valentine, okay, maybe related to Vincent Valentine, says, oh, I hope so. Do you guys consider the success of Cowboy Bebop on a, and, and and by you guys you mean Dayton because I have no yeah. <laughs> no insight into this. Do you guys consider the success of Cowboy Bebop on Adult Swim as the point that anime became mainstream? Yeah. That was my gateway as a preteen. I watch it every few years, and it's in my top five of all entertainment. I also love Samurai Champloo. Champloo, yes, great series. Also, Adult Swim, Toonami, whatever. Um, so yeah, you would identify that as uh, I don't even. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen one episode of that show. Great so. call. Is that what's it? What's his name again? It was, it was Jimmy Valentine. Jimmy, I hope you are related to Vincent, my favorite Final Fantasy character of all time. Even if you're not, maybe somehow you're distantly related to Vincent. Yeah, it could be. Uh, are you related to the a gun-toting character? vampire character? I mean, that's I can't say. We could do a whole episode on Vincent. We could. Um, we could certainly do a whole episode on Final Fantasy VII. Yes, we we can and should. Yeah, I think that was a big that era. I would say Samurai Champloo, uh, Cowboy Bebop, and other things like Trigun, things of that era, which was a little later. That was late '90s, if I'm not mistaken. But that what those things were a turning point. Because that's very they, those things came out and were presented to us very late in my art school career, and I remember that being a big turning point as when anime was getting popular. And those are the first things I remember at the Fyes and stuff that they were selling box sets of. Also, very expensive. The prices maybe only went up. You wanted a like a box set of Trigun, you were paying two hundred dollars for it, maybe for six tapes or something, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, those those series specifically, great point. I think definitely. And you know what? The quality of the... Have you ever seen Cowboy Bebop, Kyle? No, no. I was just saying, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Maybe it. Maybe the classic intro sequence of any anime. Just brilliant. And really a great series. So you could see why something... Very smart move for, you know, Cartoon Network Adult Swim to put that on. Because that... You could see hooking people with that series. It was wonderful sci-fi, high quality, great characters catchy theme song like the perfect segue for people to raise people's eyebrows and, and suck them in for sure so yeah that was a great that's definitely the, t- the time period but it came a little later in the late 90s how does this might be an ignorant question but yeah. how how does like studio ghibli fit in all of this because obviously they they really predate the yeah. movement yeah but it seems to be kind of caught up in that in the movement nonetheless with all, the way we look at yeah uh, from a Western perspective, the way we look at anime. Is that accurate? I love that you asked that. That You know what's funny about Studio Ghibli? They, their content was on those lists. So mixed in with those OVAs were Is these Ghibli features. Is it Ghibli or Ghibli? I think it's Ghibli. Yeah, you're but probably the, right. the jury's still out on that, to be honest with oh, you. Oh, people should, say it both ways? I, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Oh, okay, well, I, I don't, should feel, I don't feel that stupid. That I'm going to go Ghibli, but... Anyway, go on. You're probably... I, I defer to you. But I... It's funny because those movies, my neighbor Totoro. Well, no, you know what? I have a different. I have a different in line through, which I'll explain briefly for for Studio Ghibli. But I, those movies were on those lists, mixed in with those OVAs and those other animated films that were on there. And I specifically remembered my neighbor Totoro, and I bought a Ghibli movie called Porco Rosso. That was probably my first Studio Ghibli purchase. Because I think it was the newest one at that time that I was like, oh, I gotta watch this. You know, I knew, I knew about, and I knew about it through, I knew Studio Ghibli through Animag, so I had, I was cheating a little bit because they did a, I think they did an article about early Studio Ghibli. They did an anime. Well, I don't know if it was officially Studio Ghibli yet at this point, but it was Hayao Miyazaki as the director, maybe before he officially formed Studio Ghibli as an entity. But they did a series called Sherlock, Sherlock Hound 
which was a Sherlock Holmes series with dog anthropomorphic dog characters. And Animag ran an article on that and some of the earlier things like that Hayao Miyazaki was involved in, like Anne of Green Gables, which I think then they said they were talking about My Neighbor Totoro as well. They had a big fold out of the cat bus and stuff. So that was my first intro into what I knew was Studio Ghibli, but my first intro into Hayao Miyazaki was actually your favorite, the a CD-ROM game. What happened was, besides Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, there was a CD-ROM game that I played in Chuck E. Cheese on my eighth birthday called Cliffhanger. And what Cliffhanger was, was a stu- before Studio Ghibli was formed, Hayao Miyazaki directed a film, A Loop in the Third, which was like a famous monkey punch, uh, was it monkey punch or Gonagi property about a thief character and his best friend. There was a feature film called Lupin the Third Castle of Cagliostro. And this CD-ROM game was based on the Castle of Cagliostro. So this CD-ROM game was like a fully animated picture, a fully animated Studio Ghibli film instead of a Don Bluth film that you're controlling and they're escaping from like a, a, um, a casino heist and they have this little yellow whatever it was Mazda Carol or something this little turbocharged car and there's money flying out of the back of this thing and you're trying and it's fully animated gorgeously animated and you're trying to control which way it goes in that was my first introduction into Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli what would later be Studio Ghibli so that was my first. So that stuff what did exist and it was for sale. And the funny thing is, you could get. <laughs> that's the funny thing. You could get a sh- really shitty like unknown direct to OVA twenty minute episode of something for thirty bucks, or my a, a beautiful copy from Laserdisc of my neighbor Totoro. Like it was like made no sense, you know. And you never knew. Like you never knew what you were getting, you know. Yeah, it's awesome. It's so innocent in a way, like. I think the main thing that we've not touched on at all is this is only possible without the internet. This is only possible in the really analog day. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's, that's what makes it so special. There really isn't ever going to be something like that again. Yeah. And there just can't be. There just, it just inherently cannot be possible. I'm not saying that there aren't tons of growing and ebbing subcultures because obviously there are. Right. But they, I can, you could have easily gone on the internet. Yeah. And figure out what all these were. Right. And it, by that, with that kind of access, also just figured out that you can probably just pirate them on the internet. So, right, exactly. Watch it on YouTube, right? Right, exactly. Or just like some someone's doing something shady. So I, <laughs> I, I, that's what's cool about it is that's we, especially me, I think, lived in, live, remember life. Well, you obviously more than me in a way, but I think I kind of experienced it more as a younger person, like the, 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 the shift into this new age yeah. where I remember what it was like to not be able to look things up, to not have a phone in my right. pocket. To not... You're old enough to know that. that and that's time. crazy because no one's going to remember that anymore in a little while. But they make things a little more interesting. Gentle Fan says, for when anime was underground, anime is certainly a lot more mainstream and accessible today than it has been in the past. But mm-hmm. do you think it will ever actually hit the mainstream level of American TV shows? And would us fans even want to see that happen? I could see because of the quality, the inherent quality of anime and how important it is to the people that produce it and the inventiveness and it's seeping into culture regardless of where it is on the planet. I could definitely see it getting even more popular for sure, for for absolute sure. I don't think you're going to turn on TV and just see anime. But I think that it, 
I think the space is there certainly for it to get bigger. Um, I think what you're going to see is it's so funny. You know what? I, I could honestly say it this way. Nobody drew, when I was in high school, nobody drew in an anime style. Every it seems like she says it's not the, the case, but every kid like my daughter draws. She draws in an anime style. Every kid that she knows, she's 10. Every kid that she knows draws in a manga anime style. Like it's that it seemed that much. If you want to see, if you want to have, you know, some sort of, you know, lock into what is going on with anime, just look at that. You know, that's how kids draw now. That's what they want to draw like. They think it's a, you know, whether it's a chibi style or a more realistic style, that's what they want to draw like. You know, and I think a lot of it is due to things that are got really big, not just Sailor Moon, which is marginally big, but things like Pokemon, Digimon, some of the stuff that they're seeing on their Nintendo DS. You know what I mean? That's a big part of it. You know, it's really seeped its way in that way. Um, and I think I think it's cool. You know, why not? You know, they're drawn to it for a reason. It's good stuff. It's another thing for it's another outlet for them or another style for them to pursue if they're interested in it. You know, so I could definitely see it becoming even bigger for sure. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I I would answer it in a, in, in, my, in a more layman pers- from a more layman perspective that it already seems to be there. Yeah, it's it, big. there's a streaming service dedicated to it. There's not even streaming services dedicated to lots of other things. So there you so go. there's a a prolific world renowned streaming service that's dedicated to it. That just that. that I didn't take very seriously when I you know. We were very nice. I wrote about them. I didn't think it was anything more than me doing, you know, a small subsect of my readers a favor. But then yeah. again, another thing that was crazy, that what I remember about that, I forgot about this important component of the story. Yeah. What I remember about that is that story fucking killed. That was the thing that I remember about oh, it. Oh, that's was, was in traffic when I'd go look at the report, which I didn't really give a shit about numbers, but the, but I would, you know, they were, you can see them very easily with sure. our back end. Sure, sure. And I remember that story like very significantly outperforming. And I remember the next year when I reviewed Nino Cooney, which is Studio Ghibli, that that was I think the second or third highest traffic review I ever wrote. Oh wow! I That's... think it did. I think in the first month it did something like or two months maybe it did eight hundred thousand uniques, which is That's amazing. Yeah, a lot. That's and, super cool. And I think for comparison, I think The Last of Us later that year did. Like 1.8 million wow. uniques. So, you know, that about, give you some context. Yeah. So, a little bit, a little less than half. Wow. So, not bad. Not bad at all. We know the last one sold, you know, many millions of copies. So, so that's, that's, yeah, a nice comparison and an interesting. Yeah. Comparison. That's interesting. Holy cow. Well, that was a good episode. I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed talking about it. this. Is a great passion of mine. I found it quite riveting, to be honest. It, it, it was, uh, it's fun to learn new things about a person. And, and again, that Hiroko connection, that kind of yeah. embryonic thing that I didn't know existed, that might, that was, that familiarized with you with the fact that things were not being, not all that they seemed. Yeah. But obviously your connection with this guy, Pat, seemed to be the bigger turning point. And what's funny too is that the cartoons you were watching in, in you know, G.I. Joe and Transformers and stuff, these were being made. G.I. Joe is a great example. In Asia, but not to those specifications that we didn't really know. I mean, I I certainly didn't know that. That was the era where Japan, it was too expensive to go to Japan. It was getting, the artists were getting too good there and, you know, too good for, for service work, I should say. And it started to shift to the places like the Philippines. Right. And Korea too, right? And Korea. Japan was just too, it was too expensive at that point. You know, it wasn't the rank and bass days when they could do, Japan was a little cheaper. Now it was starting to get too expensive. They had their own things going on. You could see it. You could sort of see what was happening, you know, they had their own things that they were doing. And that shit's so cr- It's funny. Like, I used to think, in my mind's eye even, I, I would think, like, wow, the G.I. Joe cartoons were great. They were fucking great. 
You know, how could, yeah. how, it's not never going to get any better than that. And you go back and watch it and I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Really bad. Like, I still love it. It's the best. But like literally characters like shifting perspectives and like doing weird, it's like weird jumps in the frames and, right. and, and colors are all bizarre sometimes. There's just a lot of like imperfections that even a, that even I, an idiot, noticed. Yeah, and you know what, Kyle? It was a stylistic approach. That's the thing. I'm glad you brought that up again because there's something I didn't say that I really meant to say earlier was that I'm glad you brought up G.I. Joe because that's a perfect touchstone for people and that's a perfect example. They, It was a different style of doing things. G.I. Joe would try to animate something, the same level of animation throughout the show, and sometimes because there really wasn't a budget, they, it, things would fall apart and get wonky. You know what I mean? And it... it that even resonated with me as a kid. I maybe had a little more of a critical eye than some some kids did, but that always like, all right, that looks weird. That looks wrong. That looks broken. What anime would do is they would they would smartly. It was a different model of saying, all right, we're going to showcase one or two scenes and really make the animation look good, and then in these other scenes, we're just going to have the hair blowing and the mouth moving, and the art's going to look right, but the art's going to look right. And the camera pans slowly as the, the lines pans going the opposite slowly. direction. And it just that to me. Even if I couldn't articulate at that point, that had a sophistication to me because it was like almost like a, it was almost like a plan, and they were following it, and it always looked right. Even if it didn't always look full, it looked right. You know what I mean? It didn't fall apart, and that was a different stylistic approach that anime introduced, and it was that's what was so striking about it. Besides the art style, that what was was so striking. It never looked wrong, you know, and I think that's what really resonated with me as a kid. I don't know. It's just it's 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 a fascinating look into something that I don't get. I have no aversion to the art style, and I have no aversion to kind of the melodramatics that are inherent in a lot of anime and all that. And I remember being really drawn to it when I was a kid. But I think I was just drawn to like anything that I thought was kind of cool as a kid, and things that right. you kind of turn me on to. Because at the same time, we were into a lot of Western stuff as well. And it's I guess the only property I can think of that I'm engaged in the with in the anime space in any cursory way is is Danganronpa, which. Is 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 video game and I think a manga, a manga, but they also did a. a is it a? I don't even know about that. I I, I, I think so. Right. And they did an they did an anime series for it okay. that I think was yeah, just a retelling it. of the first two games. Okay. But I didn't. I think that's what it is. But I I just don't even care enough. Right. To see to them. Ch- right. I and that's. But but then I play something like Danganronpa, which is just deeply Japanese. It's just deeply Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. It's very very Japanese, and it just also at the same time seems very familiar. That's like, interesting. Like I love it. We got to get you to watch Attack on Titan. Yeah, I think that. I mean, that's on the list. I mean, it's been okay, and I, good. maybe that's maybe that's what I move on to next because I'm kind of in this lethargic stage with TV watching where I'm I'm like literally making dinner at night watching Monk episodes. You know? And I love Monk, <laughs> but I've seen it all. And, and Aaron's pointed out wisely. I watched that spread over eight years, so you know wow. I was really loyally committed to that show. But when yeah. you watch them back to back and you realize it's the same thing every episode, that's pretty it's, funny. Uh, where there's a crime of some zany crime and, and the cops in San Francisco are so inept that they need to call Monk in on every case, every funny. murder. That's pretty funny. Every murder. Every time. These guys can't, why do these guys have jobs? Right, exactly. They need this guy. Stottlemyre and Disher need to be fired. That's pretty funny. How many seasons of that show exist? I think it's eight. I think it's eight oh, seasons. Oh, wow, that's or a seven lot. Seven maybe. That's more than I thought. Yeah, there's a lot. Well, a lot that's of a good money. vehicle, the neurotic detective, right? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it's a great show. Yeah. But anyway, I use that as an example of the fact that I'm not really like engaged with everything anything i'm trying sure. to take breaks from things i started watching stranger things too and i just was like i'm not drawn to this right now and right. I, st- I started watching uh 
turn season three or something. And I'm like, I'm just not. That's interesting. Not into it right now, which, yeah. is, which is really weird. Well, for listeners out there, let us know some of the newer anime that's mm. also good because there's a lot of stuff that I know is off. You know, I know there's the stuff that, you know, Sword Art Online and some other stuff that people recommend that seem really popular and good. But yeah, if you know of anything that you think I should watch or Colin should watch, let us know. Yeah, I would love to know that. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. I mean, my, I, my Sword Art Online is funny because they released a few Vita games that are oh, did that, they people, really? that people like. In the West, but that are like apparently terribly translated. Oh, and, it's supposed to be a good series. Yeah, I, I, it's about a, it's about the kids that are like sucked into an MMO or something. Right? Yes, it's pretty cool. It's yeah. a great idea, actually. Great premise, yeah. But I, yeah, I haven't uh, familiarized myself too much with it. I don't know. I, I guess what I wonder is: is there like some sort of Western or some sort of Japanese subculture of Western anime and video games? <laughs> I always wondered that. Like, did they? Did they? Were there like kids in Tokyo and like deep pockets of Tokyo in 1988 importing? G.I. Joe episodes. G.I. Joe episodes. And, 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 and really bad Transformers, Sunbow Transformers episodes. I, maybe. I, maybe there Dude, was. Dude, that I, is an amazing... Why real, have I never thought of what, that? That would be a really cool investigation. What? Into like a scene, the Western, like the American or European scene. I really hope that's a thing. That would be awesome. That would be amazing. It probably is. Why wouldn't it be? I mean, maybe not even that early, although maybe it existed. But certainly in the early to mid-90s, we had a lot of really great shit. Darkwing Duck and Animaniacs and Ren and Stimpy sure. and all of these things that were super cool. You know what? You're right. You're right about that. And The Simpsons. I mean, I hate The Simpsons, Simpsons. But, but, the, but that's certainly interesting. And later, Family Guy. And stuff. But that stuff's probably actually hmm. brought there natively at some point. I'm sure The Simpsons is 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 translated in Japanese and it's all available. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so maybe like, that's a little like different. That. Something like that. Might yeah, be that's a little different. Yeah. But like kids that were in the know and like that. I love that. Like getting Animaniacs tapes at their local. Wow, I love. I lo- or maybe like the Nickel, like Cat Dog and like Two Angry. Was it the Angry Beavers? Angry Beavers. Angry Beavers. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah, it's. Uh, I th- love that idea. Even, those were even a little past my time. I, the, my my Nicktoons were like, uh, yeah, Ren and Stimpy, Doug, Doug, which I loved. I love Doug and and Arnold. Hey Arnold. hey Arnold, and Mo- Rocco's Modern Life was great. Oh, that was a great one. But, really, yeah, really that was that. that was so much fun. Were they were they importing Pete and Pete videos? <laughs> Pete and Pete, oh my gosh, I forgot about Pete that's, and Pete. That's great stuff. Oh, good stuff. Pete, Pete and Pete's awesome. I love how younger Pete had a, just a tattoo on his arm, which is the best. It's <laughs> <Just> the best. <laughs> that was that a show good was era. so weird. That really was. That was a great show, though. Yeah, the grunge eras were really. In the that was a great era. era for content, kids' content, because they were really. You know, they were a little out there. They were a little wacky, especially Nickelodeon. They were really notorious for doing some crazy stuff. They had some interesting shows, like some real more conventional shit like Hey Dude. and But then they had like Welcome Welcome Freshman or whatever that show right, was called. Right, I remember that. And yeah. And yeah, there's really, really, really great stuff. There was God, another that's... there was another high school show that they had for a little while. I don't remember what it was. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. That's a that's a that's an episode. Oh, that's a great idea. You could do a great episode on that. Yeah, we can start with uh, You Can't Do That on Television and, and oh, all that kind of stuff. Oh, my goodness, yes. And my 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 personal favorite, I Finders Keepers. Say. Oh, Finders Keepers. Okay, I thought you were gonna say Double Dare. Oh, Double Dare's excellent, obviously. Oh yeah. But Finders Keepers is like, in college, I discovered Finders Keepers on Nick Gas, which doesn't even exist anymore. It's like a, it was like a Nickelodeon deep cable. That's no, Nickelodeon that's, no lo- that's no longer a thing. Apparently like even not. online. Oh, that stinks. And uh, they, at two and the, like that show is deeply nostalgic for me because I'm like I remember this show. Yeah being very young and they had nes games as advertisements for like that they were giving away to the kids so that was always cool a lot of konami shit oh cool like castlevania 2 and and oh yeah it was really cool what show is this finders keepers it was the one where you would know this one where you would they would like it would be like a a game yeah between two teams 
where they had to answer a question right or whatever. If you answer the question right, you get to go into this house and like fuck up one of the rooms and try to discover what's hidden in it. I don't remember this show. Um, that sounds cool. And that sounds fun. So I, I and it was on every night at two in the morning. Okay. When I lived in Boston for like two years on Nick Gas. <laughs> this sounds amazing. And so I used to get super stoned and like get all my work done and stay up every night until yeah. 2 a.m. to watch Finders Keepers. Wow. That's that was amazing. like the highlight of my life. That is crazy. Sad, that's sad amazing. Times. I love that. Sad times. But no, shout out, of course, to to uh, Double Dare and Family Double Dare. Yes. And Mark, what's his name? Mark Summers. Mark Summers. What was the woman's name that was like the helper? Robin. Robin. Very, oh my God. You pulled, that, you pulled that out of the ether. Way too before. quick. Wait, like even if you have like a Robin poster. I may in your or room. may not have had a crush on Robin. Oh, man. I think it was Robin. Was it Robin? No, you're right. You're absolutely yeah, right. It was Robin. I'm trying to act like I don't know now. Yeah, you're like, yeah, it was, you're not, you're it was not an R buying. name. You're not buying Yeah, that. like you, you literally said it <laughs> before it even came out of my mouth. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Of course, audience, thank you so much for your support. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand if you'd like. Um, there are various tiers to explore. You get lots of perks, early access to the shows, etc. So if you would like to support us over there, I would really deeply appreciate that. So please consider it. You can follow us on various social media platforms as well. I'm on Twitter at No Taxation and Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan's on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at Dagan Likes to Draw. Shuruken. I don't know what that had to do with sure. anything. That's all I could think of. Jack, Jack, Pearl, Jack. It's not even remotely what he says, but it's what he sounds like he's saying. We hope you enjoyed uh, this. We should, we're going to do a Street Fighter episode, I'm sure, as well at oh, some please, point. please. We have to. Uh, but we hope you enjoyed this episode about the origins of anime. Maybe we'll revisit this one day. Yeah. But in the meantime, we appreciate your time. See you next time. Bye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Ahmed Alloways, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Bran, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Louise Cancado, Max Cannon, Matthew Canoy, Cesar Cardoso, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Enrique Cezina, Jay Shandarlis, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Benjamin Clark, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Will Curry, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanikos, Luke Drake, Travis Ellison, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fior, James Fitzpatrick, Mike Francis, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Glassford, Ben Gluckman, Tyler Goodwin, David Gurley, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Christopher Hendricks, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Jordan Hood, Joshua Hunt, Steve Innerfield, Stephen Insler, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Juan Lesh, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Devin McMasters, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Mad Mock Media, Alex Moans, Betty Ann Moriarty, Gilliam Mueller, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nixch, Andrew O., Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius Scarson Peterson, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Christian Phillips, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, John Quinn, Daxus Rana, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Alex Reyes, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, James Schmetz, James Schubert, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Ray Ann Shinebarger, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, 
Alex Simmons, Riley Smith, Jordan Smith, Jared Stuave, Alexander Suarez, Ahmed Tamar, Tam Tran, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Aaron Watts, Michael Wells, Payne White, Tyler Woodall, Benjamin Worrell, Corey Wyatt, James Zimmerman, Steven Sinchevsky, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Barrick, Mubarak, Tynamite, Bowen76, Chris, and Donk2015.